Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTague. And I'm Helen Thompson. This week we're talking about the world order, what President Joe Biden has called the new world order. The question we're going to ask in this episode is whether this emerging new world order is multipolar, with several centres of geopolitical power, not least China, or whether the 21st century will still be dominated by the United States. Columns of Russian tanks and troops rolled into the American-backed former Soviet Republic of Georgia today after a nighttime barrage of artillery fire and rockets. Georgia said it was trying to retake control of South Ossetia, the breakaway province on Russia's border that's policed by Russian peacekeepers. Claiming more than 10 of its soldiers were killed in the night attack, Moscow said it would retaliate. Russian jets bombed four airfields, according to Georgia, and there are conflicting reports tonight over who's controlling Ossetia's main city. So it's impossible really to think about the world order and how it's changing without going back, I think, to 2008, Helen. And you've got the Russian invasion of Georgia, which happened in August. Then you have Lehman Brothers collapsing in New York in September. And then you have the election of Barack Obama in November as an explicitly anti-Iraq war candidate. America still bogged down in Iraq, still bogged down in Afghanistan. And it feels like a sort of watershed year when the West is weakening, Russia is growing, and then you've got this like emerging power on the other side of the world, which is not bogged down in any of this, which is China. Yeah, I think that if you were framing the way in which 2008 looked at the time to many people, you would say that we were beginning to see a clearly multipolar world mm-hmm. emerging out of that, that Russia was clearly a much more powerful state than it had been in the 1990s yeah. under Yeltsin. You could see the weakness of the Western-centric or American-centric international financial system. You could see that the United States had committed to a land war in Iraq that it was on the way out of and was causing deep domestic division. And then, as you say, it wasn't just that China was, in some sense, out of the financial crash, but it actually, I think, played some part in bringing the events of September 2008 about because along with Japan, China had, the Chinese central bank had basically been selling off the debt of the two large American mortgage corporations, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that was part of the context in which really Lehman Brothers, I think, couldn't be 
um, rescued. And then if you look at the sort of immediate years after the of the crash and what had happened within Europe, you could see that there was a lot of talk about rising powers, BRICS, yeah, yeah. Brazil, Russia, China and South Africa from like 2010. And all that was the language of multipolarity. Yeah, an American decline. I think you had it in Europe as well, didn't you? You had the European leaders responding to the financial crisis and saying that this proves that the American model is flawed and weak and we need our own model, more responsible model, and we need to be less prone to catching these colds from the United States. And actually, all that was wrong, basically, wasn't it? As far as I can understand it, looking back, the Europeans were talking like this, and then a couple of years later, they're going to get smashed by their own financial weaknesses. And it turned out that they weren't less dependent on the states. They were becoming ever more dependent on the states after the financial crisis. Yeah, I think if we look at it, if we try to unpack it bit by bit, and we start with the financial crash, and we think about what was really going on as opposed to what the immediate reaction to what was going on, yeah. is that the European banks were clearly very badly exposed by what happened in 2008. And you could make an argument, I think, that the origins of the financial crash, in certain respects at least, were European-centred <laughs> rather than American-centred. Because of how many of the European banks were exposed by the fact that they needed dollars, that they were borrowing yeah. dollars, and that meant that the only central bank that could rescue them was the American Federal Reserve. So actually, a lot of the emergency lending that the Federal Reserve did in 2008 and going forward, actually, was to European banks rather than to American banks. I just find that so extraordinary. And so in that sense, I think that you can say that there was something about what happened that year that actually was going to increase American power. And that was on the financial side, because it, 2008 showed that the only international lender of last resort to keep the whole banking side of the world economy yeah. going was the Federal Reserve, does that the include the, Central Bank. Does that include Asia as well? Because it feels to me that Europe, quite clearly now that we're 15 years on, Europe's power in relation to the United States has weakened since 2008 in that not only did we see the financial dependency on the states, but then the European government started res responded to 2008 by austerity, essentially. And so militarily, we've become more dependent on them as well. So if take Britain, for example, we started slashing defence spending, and to the point that now, it's a real struggle to get back up to where we need to get up to, because we've had years of underinvestment. And you could say the same across Europe, with some notable exceptions. So a crisis comes about that we'll talk about later, like Ukraine, and suddenly, it, the American power is quite evident. And our European weakness is painfully obvious. But is it the same with this? I don't know enough about Asia to know, are they dependent on American dollars as well? Not so much then. I think the crucial question here is China. Yeah. So if we look at it as a story on the financial side at the moment and say, are we living in a multipolar financial world, which you could have got an argument out of the narrative at the time, I think, that's what 2008 crash represented. It I think that that turned, like that, out yeah. to be, turned out to be really wrong. I think that what we can see is that, the, that this is a seismic moment for Europe on the financial side and that European banks, which have been pretty big players 
in the world economy of the latter part of the 90s and the first part of 21st century would go on to be eclipsed by Chinese yeah, and you have a, right. a real shift. And then I think what's also true then in the 2010s is that China becomes more integrated, or its banks and corporations become more integrated into that dollar credit world. Yeah, but that yeah. means that they're actually being more constrained by the Federal Reserve than they were in the 2000s. So if you just look at it in terms of the America, China, Europe, I think it's definitely Europe eclipsed. Yeah, uh, But the China moves from a position where you could say that it really had some leverage in a sense over the United States because it was acting as a structural creditor yeah. to the United States, including the fact that, that its central bank had all this debt of the mortgage corporations in the first place. And it was Lawrence Summers who said that what had emerged by around 2005 was a balance of financial terror yeah. between the US and China. But 2008 kind of ends that, I think, both because in the world of quantitative easing, then the United States doesn't need Chinese lending in the same way. Uh, and at the same time, though, that China will become more integrated into, in some sense, into the Fed's orbit. And so in that sense, I think that there isn't... The, the world in which we live in, I think, is not multipolar where finance is concerned. And I think you can tell that story like around 2008. But I think if we go back to Europe for a moment... We should think about then the military question in regard to Russia and Georgia, because obviously, as you said, Tom, that's going to matter in terms of Ukraine. You could say there, I think, that 2008 is actually a moment where European states, or at least France and Germany, are trying to be quite assertive oh, yeah, with right. the US because of the fact that they vetoed, France and Germany effectively vetoed Georgia and Ukraine's NATO membership just prior to the Russian intervention in Georgia. And in that sense, I think that Russia and France and Germany, that there's a kind of like emerging like relationship there that went back to the Iraq mm, war yeah, and their yeah. opposition to the Iraq war. And you had from that period for the next decade or so, France and Germany working together to deal with Russia as a kind mm. of great power. And again, now they look like just total failures, just complete failures of European diplomacy. And actually what we've fallen back on is... American leadership again, which I just don't think was obvious when you were, when you take yourself back into the mind of 2008. It just doesn't seem obvious that world is going to emerge. The structural basis that existed pre-2008 would be strengthened rather than weakened. I certainly didn't see that. You mentioned Larry Summers earlier. I hadn't understood that American dominance had grown in relation to China financially. I'd assume that we were into this world of like mutually assured economic destruction that there was a there was still a balance but i think that if we go on to the trade question which i think we'll come to later yeah. i think you can say like with semiconductors say that right. there's yeah. a different version of mutually assured destruction but i think that what is true the united states is just not constrained by the need for the chinese central bank to buy us debt in the way in which it was before 2008 and to the contrary that China finds it quite difficult to escape the consequences of the Federal Reserve's decision making so that a bit later in 2015-16 China has a financial crisis that is really sparked when the Federal Reserve decides to begin raising interest rates again. Yeah. I think we should just go back to one thing though, connect two things together which is the Middle East story oh, yeah, yeah. and the Europe 
story because I think here we can say that the ability of France and Germany to try to assert their own line on Russia really does go back to the Iraq war. That's when you start to see that France, Germany, Russia, yeah, I wouldn't call it partnership, obviously, but whatever we want to call it, alignment yeah. taking shape because they were opposed to the war and that France and Germany from that point under Merkel and Chirac, uh, Chirac yeah. move closer to Russia on a number of questions. And so in that sense, I think you could say that this uh, American weakness that really is there in the Middle East, I think is still very much there now, actually was part of the story of the weakening for that period of time of American leadership over Europe. It's also a turning point for Britain, isn't it? And Britain's relationship with Europe could have been, perhaps, in that obviously Blair wanted a close alignment, and we'll come to this in a future episode on British foreign policy, but he wanted a close alignment with Germany and France. Mm. And then when it, when push came to shove, he chose the United States over that. He was There was already other weaknesses in his strategic idea of British leadership in Europe. But that was a moment where we went we went one way and they went the other. I think you could look at it even pull the camera even further back and say America might be weak in the Middle East, but the Middle East perhaps matters less than it used to. I think that's the question that we're going to turn to, isn't it? Because that's the bet really that Obama made. Right, yeah. And uh, having come to office and indeed I think you could say that Obama had been able to win the Democratic Party nomination as the anti-Iraq candidate over Hillary Clinton. That was the one thing that in any substantive yeah. sense distinguished him from her in that contest and that he was going to have American troops out of Iraq. Apparently. <laughs> Apparently, yeah. yeah. And that having done that, the whole point was then that the US could pivot to Asia. Our efforts to advance security, prosperity and human dignity across the Asia Pacific. For the United States, this reflects a broader shift. After a decade in which we fought two wars that cost us dearly in blood and treasure, the United States is turning our attention to the vast potential of the Asia-Pacific region. I have made a deliberate and strategic decision. As a Pacific nation, the United States will play a larger and long-term role in shaping this region and its future. By upholding core principles and in close partnership with our allies and friends. So that was President Obama speaking to the Australian Parliament actually in 2011, signalling this what he called deliberate strategy to pivot to Asia, as it became known. And at the time, again, you would look at this and say, this is a major shift in the world affairs. You have got the United States looking at Europe, the old Europe, a weakening Europe, more dependent on the United States, less important. And it's shifting away from that as the center of the industrial world outside of the States. And it's shifting its its vision to Asia and particularly to China and how essentially to control China's rise and maintain American dominance. It doesn't quite work out like that. No, I think you can say that there are two substantive parts to the pivot to Asia in Obama's mind, one of them economic and one of them military. So the economic is around the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So you've had this 
more than a decade really in which China has constructed these regional trade groupings yeah. and from which the United States has largely been excluded. And Trans-Pacific Partnership is going to be US in, China out. So it's an Asian regional trade grouping that is fairly explicitly there, I think, to try and contain China still is, economically. Yeah. And then on the other side of it was about the military deployment of American naval power and moving from the Middle East so that to a point where 60% of the US naval forces were going to be in the Pacific. And I think that the strategic logic behind it wasn't just about China. It was about saying we've failed in the Middle East. Things aren't so bad for us there that we, in some sense, can't just forget about it. That's a slight (laughs) oversimplification. But I, I do think it's important to see that part of the reason why Obama could think that was by 2011, it was clear that there was a shale boom. Yeah. A shale oil boom was underway. And so the hope, and I think Obama was quite explicit at times in saying this, was that America could be energy independent. I think that's a misnomer, but that was the language that was being talked. So it was like, we messed up in the Middle East. Fortuitously, we now have got a much better energy position than we did before. And that allows us to concentrate on where the real struggle for power is in the world, which is in Asia with China. Yeah. The guy who wrote that speech, actually, a guy called Kirk Campbell, he was Obama's Asia guru, foreign policy guru. He's now back in the White House for Joe Biden. And this is still the policy, really. You had this break, and we'll come to this under Trump, but you can see the logic of it is so clear and so obvious in a way that I'm not sure that the logic can be defied. So even though a lot of the stuff that Obama talked about and wanted to build actually didn't come to pass, they didn't join the TPP because it was it was rejected, wasn't it, by by? I Congress. don't think it ever gets to Congress. I think it becomes clear that there's no possibility of ratifying it. Because then you're moving into this world of Trump, a free trade scepticism and the area that we're now in as protectionist United States, isn't it? That the United States isn't in TP, but Britain is. And so that's so this Kirk Campbell, he's back in the White House and he's and he's influencing foreign policy. But the problem of being such a an obviously imperial power that the United States is, the dominant security presence in, in Europe and in Asia is that it's not very easy just to extract yourself. So Obama couldn't extract himself from the Middle East. So again, you can see the logic. Afghanistan doesn't matter very much. Iraq ultimately doesn't matter any much if we've got shale gas. China matters. Europe can look after itself. Who cares? Obviously, I'm oversimplifying, but that's that's the essential point. But it's not very easy just to do that. So he couldn't get out of Iraq, couldn't get out of Afghanistan. And then no American president has been able to get out of Europe. I think if we stick with the Middle East for a moment, we can say several things. I think to begin with, at least, that Obama was trying to push the narrative of Afghanistan, good war, Iraq, bad war. (laughs) I think that the real constraint that comes, though, in this respect, uh, on the pivot to Asia is really the Arab Spring, which is Mm. 2011 too. And that sets in motion, obviously, a period of significant instability in the Middle East, not least in relation to Syria, and that really quickly Obama is having to make decisions about what to do about the civil war in Syria and that red line that 
he'd put down about the use of chemical weapons. Now, I think if you go back then to the big decision that he made in the late summer of 2013, when she said that actually we're not going to take military action in response to the red line about chemical weapons apparently having been crossed. He thought that was a real pivot to Asia moment. He gave that interview, I think it was in the Atlantic magazine, just towards the end of his presidency, in which he said that was a defining moment of his presidency. He put it standing up to the foreign policy establishment who said, you've got to go back into the Middle East. Yeah, yes. This is to my, I used to work at the Atlantic, to my former editor, Jeff Goldberg. And this was Obama setting out the Obama doctrine as he saw it, which was, yeah, resist the, what we call in Britain, the blob, resist the foreign policy blob, don't go back into the Middle East. And actually, he thinks that he got a great deal out of that sort of period of diplomacy when, in that period when Britain says no, the House of Commons says no to getting involved. That makes Obama wobble in, in Washington. And he then throws it to Congress, and it's clear that Congress won't sanction any action. But he wrestles out of Russia and Syria a commitment that Russia will go in and get rid of all of their mm. chemical weapons. And he thinks this, essentially, I've spent nothing, and I've got this great concession, and it means we can keep our concentration in China. Again, I keep coming back to this, but it, it does play on my mind that when you're in these moments and you think about, you, you think that there are all these crucial turning points in history, either 2008, 2011, 2013, and maybe they're just like these bigger forces underneath that you don't concentrate on those because it's easy to concentrate on the big events. But maybe there is something to Obama's point that this isn't a fundamental turning point because the turning point is China, or you're not the turning point, but the big story here is China. But I think the predicament that the US is in that point, because actually it is China and Russia. And so I think yeah. that what we can see from like 2013, really all the way through, at least until the American election in 2016, is the very clear rise of Russian power yeah. in the Middle East. Is It's Obama has to turn to Putin to get Assad to get rid of the chemical weapons. He then has to rely on Putin's influence to help get the Iran nuclear deal. Iran and to some extent Russia after Russia militarily intervenes in Syria in September of 2015 are then part of the military action, not any sense coordinated military action, but they are part of what's going on in terms of attacking ISIS's yeah, position. Yeah, yeah. And indeed, for a while in the build-up to the American presidential election, so through the summer of 2016, there's talk about, serious talk, serious planning even, about joint American-Russian operations against ISIS yeah, yeah, in Syria. It... And by this point, obviously, Obama's had to go back into Iraq because ISIS was in Iraq as well. So I think by the end of Obama's presidency, he's both confronted with really a significant increase in Russian power in the Middle East and some kind of dependency actually yeah. on Russia. Yeah, so he's set out the parameters of what the United States needs to do and that you've got Republicans and Democrats who, who essentially agree on that now. But he can't do it himself because of events. And yeah, you had that period of sort of total chaos really in Syria where you had the Russian intervention into Syria when the Americans were still there. And I remember reading the stories of Russian planes flying, American planes flying, bombing different targets. And there was this intense cooperation behind the scenes to ensure that it didn't 
turn into some kind of World War Three, which it didn't. And the result did seem to be an increase in Russian power. And then you also had Libya, where Obama had been very reluctant to get involved and had felt that he'd bailed out Sarkozy and Cameron, who didn't have the commitment to see it through. And then again, Russian power increased, I think, in Libya. So the picture, as you get towards the end of Obama's presidency, is a kind of failed pivot to Asia and a loss of American power in the Middle East and a seemingly much, much stronger Russia. And at the same time, I I think that there isn't really anything to be said for the containing China part, the pivot to Asia being particularly successful on either on the economic side or on the security side. So you've got China militarizing various of those islands in the South China Sea on the military side. But it's also clear that TTP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, even leaving aside the fact that it wasn't possible to, it wasn't going to be possible to ratify that, that is not changing the crucial importance of China for any number of the countries in Asia, not particularly Southeast Asia. Economically, they are trying to hedge. They're trying to stay close to China. Those of them that are in some kind of security relationship with the US, they're trying to stay close to China economically. and As is Europe. Yeah, and stay close to the US Yeah, in the security sphere. And that as China moves to the Made in China 2025 position in 2015, which we've talked about before, there isn't really anything in the Obama trade strategy towards China and the region more generally that is equipped to deal with the challenge that China poses in that respect. Yeah, there's a giant hole in the American foreign policy, which it's not clear how they're going to fill. And you've got, this is the period, as we've talked about, of Britain signing. Britain, you couldn't get a closer military Mm. ally to the United States, and it's signing a deal to be China's best friend in the West. You've got Belt and Road stretching Chinese power all the way into Europe, but across across Central Asia and into Africa. Yeah. It's, I mean, when you look at Obama's presidency, it's hard to it's hard to think of it as a success. You see the intellectual idea, and that's clear, and that's there's a lot to that. You can go back, give him credit for that, but in the actual delivery, it doesn't seem to be very successful. But I think you could even question the premises, particularly the premise in which he starts, particularly actually in regard to trade. Because it's not like the problem of ratifying trade agreements um, for American presidents begins with Trans-Pacific Partnership. Indeed, Obama had campaigned in 2008 against the ratification of free trade agreements, and I think including like South Korea, the the bilateral ones that the George Bush administration had negotiated and Congress had refused to ratify. And Obama was in the non-ratified position to begin with. Yeah. So the populist to, president Obama. Yeah, to start <laughs> with the assumption that a new regional trade agreement was the way of dealing with China as a rising economic power, given the constraints that American domestic politics have been putting on trade agreements, I'd say since at least the middle of the previous decade, if not a little bit earlier yeah. than that, actually. That seems like a fairly a quite naive, I think, Assumption, And I suppose the other thing we need to turn to then is Trump, because Trump comes along in, in 2016. And I suppose American public opinion. So 
Obama is setting up this strategy to pivot to Asia and to use the TPP and all of these tools to contain China. But it's unclear his own record, as you say, where's the continuity there, but also then American public opinion. Is it is it on board? Is it prepared to to set up this global free trade area to contain China? And clearly it's not. And then and as you'd said before, what you got in the run up to two thousand sixteen is a question of Russia, rising Russian power everywhere, or in its in its spheres of influence, the Middle East and North Africa and And in Ukraine. Because of the annexation of Crimea. Yeah, and Georgia and these places, yeah. And then rising Chinese power. And so the question in 2016 was, what's the bigger threat? It was. There's a way of casting what happened in the US general election, so not the bits, the primary contest, when you had Trump versus Hillary Clinton as a confront China candidate, who was Trump, Trump, and a confront Russia candidate. In Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton spent a lot of time on foreign policy in 2016 talking about Syria. Yeah. She actually was willing to increase the stakes for a confrontation in the air with Russia in Syria. And in a way, that is not an accident. It was a feature that was built in Mm. to American geopolitical choices by the way that things had developed since 2008. And in part, it came in a way because there'd been an increase in American power. Yeah. In terms of, in one sense, the United States had more options right, than yeah. it had previously done. But on the other hand, it was a response to the fact that actually in one part of the world in the Pacific, Chinese power had risen, at least in some respects, at least economically, I would say, yeah. into something security-wise in, in the Pacific. And Russian power had risen in the Middle East and in Europe. And in that sense, you could say that it looks like what to do for the United States in a world in which its dominance is being threatened in two different on two different fronts. Yeah, the, but the, the thing with Trump, and we should turn to this in the third part of this episode, is that he's not just representing the confront China policy, and he he's not the just confront China and Hillary the confront Russia. He also has a very different vision of American power mm. per se. Like he. I'm not sure he fundamentally supports American supremacy or the conditions that come with American supremacy. He doesn't, the world order that exists in which America has to maintain European security and Pacific security, he doesn't really want those responsibilities. He doesn't want dominance everywhere. He's quite happy to, for Russia to take on ISIS because it means he doesn't have to pick up the bill. He raises other things like giving Japan a nuclear weapon because why do we, why are we defending Japan? Why don't we just let them defend themselves against China? What's in it for America? That's a very radically different policy that no other US president has had. And Joe Biden doesn't have it. And so you had a, you had a president's, a presidential election in 2020, which really was about a different perceptions of a world order. And so that's what we, and that's the kind of world that we're now living in. Yeah. And what kind of world order that is, whether there's any possibility of there being a world order, is what we're going to discuss after the break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Sixty million people died between 1900 and 1946, and uh, since then we established a liberal world order, and that hadn't happened in a long while. A lot of people died, but nowhere near the chaos. And now is a time when things are shifting. We're going to there's going to be a new world order out there, and we've got to lead it, and we've got to unite the rest of the free world in doing it. That's Joe Biden there, giving a very American view of history and how the world order was established post 1945 a lot of truth in it obviously but i think what he's really saying is not a new world order he's saying how does america maintain the existing world order how does it maintain american supremacy in both europe and asia something that he feels is being threatened by china which it evidently is but also, really, he's saying domestically as well, it's being threatened by Trump, who's not really interested in that role. Yeah, I think that the implication of what Biden's saying is, look, there are pressures that might move the world in a more multipolar direction, but we need to resist them because the world should, in his mind, still be dominated by and led, not just dominated by, but led by the United States and that it is possible for the United States to recreate something that looks like the post-Second World War international order. That kind of ignores the fact of the element of bipolarity in terms of competition between <laughs> yeah, we the United States that. and the Soviet Union in that period. But clearly the United States was the more powerful state over the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Oh, it's clear now. Years. I th- it, it, was it necessarily clear at the time? Because they, I was uh, speaking to somebody the other day, and they were saying we forget how extraordinarily powerful the Soviet Union was, and how close it was to these centres of industrial power in Europe, and how they had the military might to take over Europe without the United if the United States wasn't there. In a certain way, that, that China doesn't have the same power today. Yeah, I think that the Cold War story is is pretty complicated, and there's yeah. no point in it in which the United States seriously tries to push back or as effectively a Soviet empire in Eastern Europe. And then, and obviously there's a period in the 70s, a detente period, where they look to reach some accommodation with the Soviet Union over a range of, in a, in, in a range of areas. But I think if you looked at the period as a whole, you would say that the United States was still the militarily the most powerful yeah. state. Mm. Despite the fact of the difficulty the United States then had in turning that general military power into actually winning any of the wars that it fought <laughs> in the Cold War years. And I think the thing for now is like to try to unpack 
the nature of geopolitical power in today's world and say, can we even talk about there being something that could collectively be described as multipolarity? Or is actually the world become sufficiently complicated geopolitically such that what might be going on in one sphere, let's say finance, might be very different than what's going on in terms of the structure of power around trade and might be something again when it comes to military power might be something again when it comes to energy power or the international institutions because the kind of presumption in the american rhetoric now is that all these things go together but that might not necessarily be the case yeah in some senses the multipolar world has already emerged so in singapore there's a conference called the shangri-la conference which is essentially the Munich Security Conference of Asia. And I was talking to somebody who was there recently, and they said, in that specific context, it's very clear that there's a kind of great power rivalry, which the United States is taking very seriously. So at this conference, you have the American Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin flying in to the beginning of the conference, and he essentially sets out how the American presence in East Asia has been beneficial to everyone and we should continue this. And he's making a pitch to all of these countries to stick with the US, stick with it in trade terms, stick with it in security terms. And he's presenting the kind of story that Joe Biden was presenting there at the beginning, that this isn't an American imperium. This is an order in which you all benefit. And those that were there at the conference said, the Chinese sent vast numbers of official. They did book up entire hotels and then they send their official to respond essentially to the American, to Lloyd Austin. And they said that they reply to every point that Lloyd Austin made and trying to say, no, this is an American imperial project. Come and join ours. That's the subtext of this rivalry. And it's playing out in the security conference that we in Europe don't really pay much attention to, but it's you could say it's like the sort of centre of the world now. Yeah, I think that you could say in economic terms there's like a competition between what sometimes the Chinese leadership will refer to as Chinese-style modernisation yeah. and what the US wants to, to some extent at least, still refer to as a kind of like a liberal international economic order. I think what's interesting, though, is, or one of the things that's interesting, I should say, is that if we just looked at the world in like trade terms, I think we would have to say it was multipolar in the sense that China is just crucially important to any number of economies in the world. So that China is the world's largest trading partner, not the United States. And we can see that the European Union, which obviously in trade terms is a big player too, wants to swing both ways, so to speak. There's a great deal of reluctance to choose between the US and China. If we looked at it in terms of finance, though, I think we'd have to say that it's not multipolar at all, that the US is dominant, that for some of the reasons that we're talking about earlier in terms of the Federal Reserve Board's position, but just that it, in some central sense, has the world's most important currencies still. And despite... Chinese and Russian ambitions to get away from that, it's very difficult to do, not least for China, because China doesn't have a, a currency that is fully liberalised. Yeah, it's got that power to do it, I suppose. There are strategic weaknesses in the rival currencies to the dollar, aren't there? So the euro is obviously strategically weak, and it's trying to answer those questions, but it's difficult politically. And then China. But I think if China, for instance, were try to liberalise its capital 
account allow the free flow of, of capital in and out of China, it would find many of its domestic citizens taking their money out of the country. It simply it does not have the capacity right now to liberalise its currency in a way that would have to occur for it to begin to aspire to be a rival to the dollar, even over the medium well, can it, term. Can it possibly then rival American power? If, it can't, if it's too weak in a sense to do that, which is a prerequisite, to be financially dominant or at least compete with the United States. Like I, I suppose I don't quite understand at what point does trade dominance translate into military and power, just pure global power? I think that in a sense is the historical question. And I think that probably the answer is that it won't by itself so that something else would like have to change. Yeah, And I think though that's where we get into... The question that gets us to what we've talked about before, which is that China, where energy is concerned, has a very considerable strength. Its dominance of the extraction and processing, particularly processing of metals, and a very acute weakness. It's oil and gas foreign dependency and the fact that where oil's concerned, that it's also got a very serious maritime security problem because of the American capacity block the Strait of Malacca in particular. And so how that question plays out in terms of whether it's China's strengths on the energy side or China's weaknesses that are going to be decisive for it, I think is is a crucial part of what the relationship is between then China's trading power and these other questions. Yeah, I mean, China also has this relationship with Russia, where it has an oil-rich energy partner now. But the United States, thinking about, in the way you were talking there about China and its its strengths and its weaknesses, when you look at America overall, the picture overall, it's extraordinarily strong still. I was speaking to somebody who said there was a sort of danger of presentism when when we're thinking about multipolarity and the changing world order, just as we were talking about how you can overinterpret 2008 or interpret it in the wrong way, 2008, 2011, 2013, all of these moments, 2016, Donald Trump. I mean, people overinterpreted the chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan, for instance. This was the end of American power and it couldn't be taken seriously. Somebody, I was speaking to one official who said, there's the West and then there's the kind of the Wild West. And the Wild West is the United States. It's still booming. It's young. Demographically, it's strong, it's a scientific superpower, technology, military strength, all of that unmatched. And then there's insipid Europe, which has got none of those things and is becoming weaker and more dependent. And so when you look at the West, there's a danger of overinterpreting and thinking about the whole of the West in, in European terms. But America has virtually on every box, it would tick every box for being strong, apart from perhaps domestic, political stability. I think that there's no doubt, if we go back to where we started from, that the divergence between Europe and the United States has just continued through the period in which we've been talking uh, about, and that the energy transition, such as it is at the moment, is going to be significantly easier for the United States than it is going to be for European countries. And then the fact that you have Europe's largest industrial economy, Germany, really got 
stuck on a really painful dilemma about what to do about the China question, given that China is so important to the German And taking economy. over its own industry. It's yeah, like. and what do they do about the geopolitical risk plus the pressure from Washington to de- to de-risk and whether German corporations will actually be willing even to accept steers from their own government, let alone from Washington, about how to deal with that. But I think there is one area where we can see something like multipolarity at work, where the Americans are not in a strong position. And it goes back to another of the places where we started, and that's the Middle East. Because the United States clearly had several decades of trying to use military power to reshape the Middle East to its strategic advantage and has not succeeded. <laughs> yeah. And not only is Russia still a player in the Middle East, Turkey is a player in the Middle East. It's been made into a more important player in the Middle East, paradoxically, by the war in Ukraine because of Turkey's mm. crucial geographical position in relation to that war and being within NATO. But the fact that China is now asserting itself as a serious player in the Middle East. And in particular, the fact that not only has it doubled down on its relationship with Iran that is quite long-standing, but it's inserted itself into Saudi-Iran relations, as we've talked about before, and at least played some part, perhaps the Russians played some part too, in re-establishing diplomatic relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran. So you've now, I think, got the possibility that we've got a Russia-China-Iran sort of axis that's got some sort of origins going back beyond the last few years. The Saudis might be moving in that direction. And, and then there's the question of a country that we should have spent more time in this talking about, and then we haven't, which is obviously India, Yeah, as to... What happens then in a world in which the United States has to accept really that Russia has become more important to India on the oil side, not least because European countries need to be buying less Russian oil under sanctions. And the United States wants India to play a pretty crucial part in containing China in the indo Pacific. I suppose you could see the multipolar world emerging through how the US presidents think about the world. And so that's both Biden and potentially a future Trump presidency, which is obviously a, a, a big question mark that hangs over this whole discussion is who is going to win the next election in the States. And they obviously have very different views about the world. But something they share is that they want to deal with people like Modi in India as an incredibly important, powerful player in helping the United States contain China. So Modi was in Washington last week, I think, on a state visit. Trump had him over. I think Trump was quite successfully built close relations with Modi visiting India himself. So this is something, this is a a line of continuity that will continue whether Trump wins or whether Biden wins. I think with Trump, he wants almost a multipolar world. He wants to deal with these strong men who exist in different parts of the world who he sees as being important and that he can 
strike deals to, as he says, end the war in Ukraine on day one. If that happened, it's not going to happen, obviously, but he wants to do a deal with Putin. That's perfectly possible. He wants to do deals with Xi, and he wants to build a close relationship with Modi. So I wonder whether that is a kind of tell, in a way, that this is how the American presidents see it. And if they see it like that, then it's true. Yeah, I definitely think there's there's something about what's going on here that depends on the American framing of it. I think, though, there are certain underlying geopolitical realities that are going to persist, whoever is in power in Washington. And I think that one of them is, perhaps in some sense, the most important one, is the question of how the Chinese leadership is going to deal with the set of predicaments that China now faces like geopolitically. So in the same way in which it matters is how the Americans, much power any American president thinks the United States has and how to use that power. It yeah. also really matters how much power Xi Jinping thinks that China has to act as essentially a revisionist power, particularly on Taiwan. And what the assessment of China's military capacities are in relation to any confrontation with the United States over Taiwan. So in that sense, I think that in the same way in which the there is a multipolar world around the Middle East, there is a multipolar world around the Pacific. I suppose one way of thinking about Helen is that both things can be true at the same time. The US can remain dominant, supreme, the obviously number one power in the world, and a form of multipolarity emerge underneath American supremacy. And that, in a way, has existed for a long time now. America has never had its own way anywhere in the world. It's always had to deal with other powers. Particularly, actually, in Asia, the two Cold War wars that it fought, one to a stalemate in Korea and one humiliatingly in Vietnam would suggest that the United States struggles to be a Western Hemisphere power, being able to shape the future of Asia. Yeah, to do both things is an extraordinary job, both in Asia and Europe. And one man who who's obviously thought about this a lot is Henry Kissinger and was the man who was behind Nixon to China and this great American move. And interestingly, he was, he's in London at the moment as we speak, and he met with Rishi Sunak late last week and they talked for an hour about this. And I think we're going to turn to that and the kind of things that Kissinger might think about the world order in the next episode when we talk about British foreign policy and how Britain exists in this emerging world order, whether that remains America supreme or something much more chaotic. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, share on social media, and shout about it to your... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Friends and family.